Ivy Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen, and each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate of a top college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office. It will be full of behind-the-scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Jennifer Duran, a former admissions officer from Columbia University and an ingenious prep counselor, about what Columbia admissions officers really want to see from applicants. Jennifer and I will break down the Columbia admissions process, how admissions works behind the scenes, what students should include in their applications, especially in their supplemental essays, and more. Hi, Jennifer. How are you today? Hi, Ellen. I'm well. I'm well. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Well, just to start off with, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself, your background? Sure. So I actually went to Columbia as an undergraduate. So I was at, I was part of Columbia College, graduated from there, went on to work in the admissions office about three and a half years. I was a college counselor for many years after that, and then finally made the switch into working in recruiting and campus recruiting. So now I work with college students, getting them. And in addition to the work that I do with Ingenious and helping to counsel students, but I've kind of seen the entire gamut of what I'd call early career candidates, everything from finding high school students to get them into college and then getting the college students students into their their first job. So what did your role at Columbia entail? So at Columbia, I was an admissions officer. I was an admissions counselor, right? Actually, we were called admissions officers, but I actually owned a territory that I would travel, you know, where, where I would travel. So in my first year, I had Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Brooklyn, Staten Island, the Bronx, and then later on, they, la- they added on Latin America. But I also, at the time, I also had some responsibilities over diversity recruiting. So I would work closely with some of our partner organizations, you know, that 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 sort of created and fed the pipeline of diverse talent, you know, to the university. Uh, and I would go to diversity career fairs and visit targeted schools across the country um, in different cities to make sure that we had an appropriate, you know, sort of pipeline of, of diverse talent. I usually like to start these episodes with just kind of a general overview of admissions at Columbia. So to start off with, what kind of students do you think Columbia is looking for? Obviously, like you said, they're looking for very diverse candidates, but what attributes might students explore if they're trying to showcase school fit? So I always say that Columbia is really a sort of the kind of place where it's sort of self-selective, right? It, it really takes a certain kind of student. I mean, you have to want to be in the city. You have to want to be in a campus that's in the middle of the city. But I think more importantly, you know, I, I mean, I think the beauty of Columbia is that it has both a school of of engineering, all right? So, so anybody who wants to go into STEM professions can do that. And then it's got a college of arts and sciences. And so I think that it, it caters to a lot of different students, but certainly students who, you know, who are interested in being in an urban center, who are interested in, I mean, certainly those who attend Columbia College are interested in the arts and sciences. Columbia has a very robust core curriculum, which is really the sort of hallmark of it, a lot of really sort of focused on humanities and Western culture and civilization. And I think that people who are interested interested in philosophy and thought and history, you know, are really sort of attract this university. And then, you know, with regard to some of the sciences, right, because there is a school of engineering and applied sciences. I mean, I think that people who really want to, you know, pursue those careers, the more sort of technical ones are, are also attracted. But again, I mean, if people are looking for the sort of rah-rah, like, you know, school that goes to, that's part of all the the, the cheering at the football games or, you know, that, that NCAA school that's going to make it to March Madness, Columbia is not that place. I mean, we've got sports teams, but it's never going to be that place. So I think that for someone who really appreciates not only campus life and and the sort of academics on campus, but also really using the city that you're actually in as a sort of extension of your campus, I think that that's really the the kind of candidate that it attracts. And that leads really well into my next question, which is what makes Columbia unique in comparison to other elite schools? So obviously, like you said, being in the city is a major factor, but are there other things students often don't think about? Being in the city is absolutely like a distinctive factor because- you know, you can have an internship, you know, and and take the subway to that internship and get involved in lots of different things and just really kind of take advantage of the city overall. I think the city also tracks, I mean, to the campus itself as well, and and certainly a testament and, and a real like credit to the admissions office. They try really hard to get 
diverse people across the board. I mean, there's geographic diversity, there's ethnic diversity, there's, you know, ethnic and racial diversity. They try really hard to find lots of people. So I think that, you know, that's, that's a very attractive quality too, to come to a place where you're going to meet people from lots of countries, people from many different states, people from all walks of life, to have access to that sort of urban hub, that urban center. And again, I, I mentioned earlier the, the sort of academics, especially as it relates to Columbia College, you know, where there is that core curriculum and Columbia has become renowned for that core curriculum. It's been around nearly a hundred years, again, really sort of rooted in the foundations of Western civilization and Western culture, but there are requirements, you know, to take a philosophy course, to take a literature course, art humanities, music humanities, and really sort of learn the foundations, if you will, of Western culture. And so that's a big thing. Someone coming to Columbia needs to know that because their core requirements will include all of those classes. And I think if people are looking for something that's not so sort of Eurocentric, if you will, or, or they're looking for a, a university that doesn't have so many core requirements in that way, then, I mean, that's certainly something to kind of factor into the discovery as, as someone is kind of, as students are kind of looking at what colleges make sense. Now, students can choose to apply early decision or they can apply regular decision. What sort of students would you recommend that they apply early decision? I think that that I would classify students in two categories as they're sort of looking to to decide what, you know, which way they're going to apply. Certainly, if somebody knows that Columbia is absolutely their top choice, apply early decision. Apply early decision because the rates of acceptance historically have been higher for early decision. It is a commitment that you're making because early decision is binding. So, I mean, it's, I think for someone who knows for someone who knows and doesn't have a concern about financial aid, especially, right? Because I think if you're looking to kind of shop around and get different financial aid packages, then maybe you, you, you know, maybe, maybe you don't, maybe you stay away from, from early decision. But certainly if you know that early decision is your top choice, you know, I would say, you know, let the university know and apply, strike while the iron is hot. But then if you, you know, if you are someone who you know, who wants to shop around and look at financial aid packages, uh, you know, you've got a couple of schools in mind, then maybe regular decision would be the, the sort of better option. So you can have sort of, you, you can have everything to look at. Or for someone who's just uncertain, right? If you're not sure what school you want to go to, you're not willing to commit that early, right? Then, then regular decision might be the better option because then you have time to kind of, you know, to, to, to take a look at, at, a, at an array of schools and then to kind of make a thoughtful decision about which ones you wanna to go to once you have all of your offers in hand. And for students who are deferred early or who are waitlisted, should they write a letter of continued interest? Absolutely. So I remember working in, in admissions and one of the things that we would ask, so of course people are deferred, people are waitlisted. And as we sort of moved throughout the season and looked at the waitlist, because sometimes we would pair it back a little bit and say, okay, there's a lot of people on hold or people get back to us and say, look, we've gotten into other schools and we would kind of, you know, it, it would thin out a little bit, but we would absolutely start asking who's been in touch with us. Who, whom have we heard from? Who wants to be here? And so absolutely, if one, if a person has been waitlisted, if a student has been deferred or waitlisted, absolutely send a letter of continued interest, update somebody on, or, you know, update the admissions office on any new activities that you're doing, any, you know, any new grades or so, definitely continue to convey the interest because schools look at that. They absolutely do. It doesn't guarantee admission, but should the schools get to the point where they're looking to make some movement, where there's some movement off that wait list or off that deferred list, those are absolutely the things that that are being considered for sure. So I have Columbia's test optional policy in front of me right here. I'm going to read it. ACT and SAT test results will not be a required component for the first year in transfer 2022 to 2023 and 2023 to 2024 application cycles. And students who are unable to or choose not to submit test scores will not be at a disadvantage. So that's their official policy, but we know sort of behind the scenes that some schools are truly test optional or test neutral, whereas some schools they say they're test optional, but they're more test preferred, especially some elite schools. So how do you think current uh, admissions officers at Columbia are viewing these? Sure. Well, I will say this. Given the pandemic and given the the sort of the worldwide issue with COVID, I mean, it, it's a smart policy that the universities were sort of accommodating, right? Some people literally couldn't take the exams, couldn't physically get to them, weren't able to, you know, even, even if you did sit for them, they might not have been able to be scored. So I think that the universities had to be flexible, of course, and find other ways to kind of assess candidates who were worthy. But I do, I would say just, you know, having been at the admissions office in the time that I was, 
scores are preferred, right? I mean, it, it was just, it was one additional data point that the school used. I mean, obviously they looked at test scores. They looked at when, when available, they looked at your rank at school. They looked at the number of APs that you took, right? I mean, it wasn't overly formulaic, but there were certain kinds of things that they were looking for, right? AP classes at GPA, right? Your weighted average, your unweighted average, the, the organizations that you were part of, how many you know, leadership roles you had. So all of those things kind of factored into that. And, and just, you know, historically knowing that there's real, there's a real attempt to, to identify what they feel is academic rigor, that the testing, while it is optional, if they have it, I mean, they're going to want to see it and, it and it would be preferred, right? I mean, all things considered, I mean, that's that it was their policy to have it for so many years. So in, in general, or maybe specifically with the work you do with your students, how do you make the decision about whether or not to send testing? So for example, if a student's ACT is in the 25th percentile for Columbia, which might be like a 32-ish, mm-hmm. would they send that? What do you think? Well, you know, I think I try to look at where a student sits on the continuum, given where given where the average sort of candidates or where the candidate pool sits. So sometimes a person might come in with a test score that sits right in the middle 50% or in the, or even in the top 25%. And I'm like, that is absolutely something to be proud of, right? Like that's a really good score. And so I, I, I definitely have had to encourage some students to please, please share those scores with the universities that there's nothing. Some people are like, I didn't get a perfect score. I'm like, nobody's expecting you to get a perfect score, but you got a really, really good score and we should showcase that. And so, you know, again, in, in my role as a counselor here at Ingenious, that's one of the things that I, that I work on with my students. I want to make sure that they know that even though it's testing optional, if they've done really well on the test, I want them to share and I want them to make sure that they, that they send those test scores to the schools. I'd like to hone in now on your work specifically as admissions officer. So could you walk me through just like a a day in the life, um, not just in the admissions reading season, but also like in the summer, the different seasons? Sure. So I think that you, you, you know, you, you pointed it out right there that, you know, a day in the life really depends on the part of the year that you're in, right? The season. And so, you know, if, if we're looking at it, I mean, I'll, I'll look at it from an academic year if we're sort of starting over over the summertime. And a lot of the summer is really focused around making sure that we're getting ready for the fall recruiting season because often admissions officers are ready to hit the ground running come September. There's a host of career fairs and information sessions that are hosted across the country. And a lot of that is done, has historically been done in person, right? I mean, with COVID, things have certainly changed. Um, but again, the summer is really about sort of of planning all of those activities, all of those events, being really strategic about which high schools to visit, you know, where there's real interest from students, finding venues across the country where like we can invite students from the local schools and the local population to, to, to really kind of be a part of the, the events. Going into the fall, you know, they don't call it busy season for nothing. It gets very busy because you're traveling so much. You're on the road. Um, we would always say like, hey, we're on the, I'm going to be on the road for the next two months. And so beginning early September, often through like mid to late October, you're just traveling and doing, you know, college fairs. And then finally, you know, November, things start to settle down to read applications, to make initial decisions about early decision candidates. By December, the, the sort of the dust settles a little bit you know, and, and we take it a little bit slow. It's a sort of calm before the storm, because then as soon as January hits, it is super busy, you know, depending on, on the time or depending on the year. I mean, when I was there about a 10th of all the applications we read, you know, in, from November to December or that early decision deadline. And then the rest of them, the other 90%, we try, yeah, I mean, we struggled to get through those then, you know, from January to March, because we had to make decisions Back then they were sent out on April 1st and student, no, we sent out letters so that people could, you know, so they would arrive by April 1st. Right. So now, you know, everything's electronic, but back then we had to make sure that we had everything ready before because it was like a mass mailing. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's really, you know, that, that's sort of the, the process we're reading, you know, from January through, through March, making decisions in April. And then again, from like April to May, we're hosting days on campus, right? Students are coming to visit. We're making sure that we roll out the red carpet because we want them to make their decision and we want them to choose Columbia by May 1st. And then again, things sort of power down and get just a little bit quiet in June. And then we pick up steam again over the summer to get it all started for the following fall. 
So say that you're in the reading season, you've got your pile of applications. My application is the very top. It says Ellen's application to Columbia. What does the process look like? You're opening my application on a computer, obviously. But what does like the process look like of you reading the application? What do you read first? How are you evaluating it? It might be different for each admissions officer, right? I mean, you, you have access to the same information, but some people might zero in on, on, on particulars. I used to, I mean, I used to start off with a real sort of high level overview. Okay. Like, you know, where does a student live geographically in the country? What's, what high school do they go to? Do they go to a public or a private high school? I would look at things like, okay, where do the parents work? I would then move on to the next page, take a look at, at their activities, right? I would take a look at the Columbia, and, and we're going to get into this question just a little bit. I mean, they had short answer questions around like, what does the person read? You know, what does the reading list look like? What are those, some of those other things? I would make notes about that. I would take a look at their academics, right? So I would jot down every AP course they had taken. I would look at their weighted average versus unweighted. I would look at the rank if that available. And I would actually fill out a form. All of this is electronic now, but I would fill out a form with all of these details then. And then effectively make you know, come up with some kind of a rating. And the ratings at the time looked at two things. They looked at the academic rigor. And so the academic rigor sort of included, and, and, and to a certain extent, that's, that's still formulaically how they, how they do it, right? They're still looking at how, how strong academically a student's program is based on the AP courses they take, based on their rank. When testing is available, they look at that as well. And then the school had a way of sort of gauging or sort of quantifying, you know, if you will, like how involved and, and the sort of the impact of the, of the involvement of a student. So, you know, if someone was very, very involved at, at competitions at, at a national, international level, if you had like an Olympic athlete or so, that person would have been deemed, you know, a real sort of star, um, you know, from a personal perspective, right? We always talked about the academic and the personal because that person would have had a very compelling sort of personal profile. Um, and then you might've had someone who was, you know, who, who was very active on their local campus as the, the president of a particular organization or, or, or even multiple organizations, but they didn't have a national or international impact. They weren't necessarily nationally ranked. They hadn't been, you know, awarded, you know, some kind of medal of honor for, for doing something, you know, super noteworthy, but they were very, very active in their own right. They were doing much more than their own peers. And so the, the school had, had a way and has a way of sort of looking at, or the, the impact of one's like sort of academic profile, if you will, and then their sort of personal impact just based on the kinds of activities they've been involved in and, and how much sort of leadership and how much notoriety they've received. So how much time does that work out for like per application on average that you're reading it? Well, and, and I forgot to mention, you know, that we also read uh, their essays as well. The personal statement is important. I would say for me at the time, 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, it could take a while. Sometimes a, a, an essay was much longer, but I think really looking at all those all those components, if you're being really sort of thoughtful about it and the, the essay is engaging, it can be 15 to 20 minutes. Sometimes you open up that application, the person has not tried at all. They have not attempted to answer questions and it be very light or you know as soon as you look at it when you see a person's GPA and it's, you know, a 2.5 and they've gotten Ds and Fs, uh, you know, that, that application might not receive the same 15 or 20 minutes, right? Because I mean, you kind of, you have an idea early on, like, hey, this person is not going to be competitive. But for candidates who are in the running, for candidates whose, whose GPAs are, you know, right in the mix and whose who's testing, again, when available, the rank, the, the activities, those candidates, like I said, on average are getting 15 to 20 minutes, probably closer to 15, but, but absolutely. I mean, they're getting, you know, they're getting their sort of fair shake considering there's so many applications to review. Uh, how are decisions made in the admissions committee of who ultimately gets in? So... I, as an admissions officer, read my app, read the applications that are assigned to my regions or that are assigned to me based on, you know, however the breakdown happens at that office, right? And sometimes it's by organization because maybe there's some outside organizations that feed candidates or maybe it's by, you know, high schools or maybe it's by, again, geographic region. But however the school um, and the admissions office kind of decides to, to divvy up the, the applicant pool, uh, the admissions officer then reads those applications and then makes recommendations on those students and sits before committee. 
right? So you have committee season where you actually go and sit down with, you know, a committee of your peers who are all reading applications as well. But, you know, they, they've been brought in from other, you know, they're, they're representing or they're reading applications from other geographic regions, you know, they might be aligned to other programs, but, but you bring in a diversity of sort of, of opinions and thoughts because they too have candidates that they look at and it gives you a, a, it really provides an opportunity for everybody to kind of level set and for everyone to kind of see what the, what the entire pool looks like. And when you see someone else's applicant pool, you're like, oh, okay, well, mine is just as strong or mine is stronger. And so you can, you know, the people around that table making those committee decisions, then, you know, we'll vote on, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of take a, an initial first stab at it, if you will, of deciding whether or not someone gets an offer. We go through that process. And in the end, you, you know, the, the sort of more senior people at the office, the directors, the associate directors, take a look at how everything shakes out against the sort of projected number of candidates that they need to accept. And if some tweaks need to be made, you know, there might be too many athletes here. There might be way too many history majors, right? Like you really try to accept a variety of students, but in the end, you might have too many in certain groups. You might have too many, you know, trombone players or so, and you really want to be able to sculpt the class or, you know, I mean, I think you want to be able to make sure that there's enough representation across the board. Um, and so there's a period where, where you know, there, there's a closer look taken at how things kind of shake out to make sure that it's in line with what was intended um, in terms of what the school can bear from a capacity perspective. Because if, you know, if the incoming class is a thousand students, you certainly can't accept 2000. And so all those things need to, to be looked at closely. I mean, New York would send us lots of candidates. So maybe New York, we had to pare back a little bit on New York because there's too many or there's too many from, you know, Stuyvesant High School. We accepted, you know, 75, but we probably have to go back and, and wait list a few because we just need to make sure that we've got it the right number of candidates to extend to. So I think that that's, you know, th those are the kinds of things that that are not super formulaic. You have to kind of go through and, and look at them, but that is all part of the committee process. Well, that itself is not a committee, the committee process. That's not what happens behind closed doors in the committee, but that's all part of the sort of selection. So for schools that are very competitive, you know, some of these like top U.S. public high schools or private schools or just students who are from, I don't know, like very competitive areas like the Bay Area, how can they stand out from their classmates? So I would say that that for students who are attending, you know, very competitive schools, one of the most important things that they can do is literally stand out at their own school. So it was my experience that if a student was in the top 5% of the school, if a student had testing that was in the top 10 or 20 or 25th percentile, that would bode very well. I mean, that, that, that showed a really strong candidate. As we looked at students schedules and their sort of academic profile, right? And as we looked at the rigor of their curriculum, we would look to see how many, you know, how many AP courses or what sort of advanced placement or honors courses were offered at the school and how many that student was taking. And then finally, we looked at, you know, how involved that student was because you could be you know, you could have a perfect 1600 on your SAT, you could be number one at the school, you could have a 4.0 GPA, but if you literally did zero activities and you never held office at school or you never got involved in anything in any meaningful way, then that just wouldn't be the right profile. But I think that the stronger one is, the higher up in the class one is, the more sort of advanced courses to the extent of what the school can can offer, right? I mean, it costs money to offer AP curricula. And so if a school, you know, public school might, no, might only be able to purchase a couple of different sort of classes or the curriculum for, for, for those different classes to offer at their school, whereas another school might be able to offer 10 or 12. So maybe, you know, you've got the, the one candidate coming from Dodge High School in the Bronx who took all three AP courses that the school offered and was valedictorian, but then you've got another candidate who might be going to to Regis, which is also a very prestigious school, right? And then that candidate just all, all, all the all the advanced courses that are offered there, they're not taking them, right? So I just think it's, you know, it it really just kind of depends on on how much that person has pushed themselves and, and how they've really distinguished themselves, but both academically and then personally by really being involved in organizations, but also by by really kind of standing out across all those like quantitative like academic areas, the testing, the GPA, making sure that they're taking, you know, the most challenging coursework. And does Columbia track demonstrated interest? 
So yes, to a certain extent, I mean, the university does look at how often they encounter people right on campus, right? And so that sort of demonstrates interest when you inquire online, when you attend an event, right? And, and you sign in for that. The school is looking for that because, and I can say this, I do remember, and I had a, a colleague who had been working in admissions for many years, and he would always look to understand how, he always wanted to try to determine how interested the person was. And how did he do that? He would often look at the date by when that person would apply. He would turn that application around and say, okay, this person applied in October. This person really wanted us. Whereas this other person applied December 31st. Right. So I think that, you know, I, I think that similar to dating, if you will, you know, a, the, the, the universities want to know that you want them. And so I think that, you know, and that's why we talked about early decision where they're more likely to take someone who's willing to commit to them early. Someone who says, look, I want to be, I want to be there. And if I have your offer, I will go there. And so there's much more of a sort of willingness to be able to, to sort of, to let someone in at that point. And are there any misconceptions you find about Columbia in general, about being a student at Columbia or about applying to Columbia? I, I think that there might be misconceptions about what Ivy League means, right? And, you know, and, and what happens at an Ivy League institution. And I would say to you, like, having been a student at Columbia, having, having both been a student, having worked there, it was a pretty normal environment. Obviously, save the, you know, for the fact that, like, it was very challenging to get into. I mean, there weren't any sort of stuffy eating clubs. I, I think that, you know, when, when you think of maybe a little bit of pomp and circumstance that might exist at, at some older, more, you know, sort of decorated institutions, there was none of that. Like I said, we weren't even that sort of, and, and then in addition to that, we weren't even that sort of rah, rah, like as it related to sports. I mean, I remember the, the sort of main gates were on 116th and Broadway in Manhattan and probably 200 blocks North was the stadium. And in the time that I was a student, I never went, not in, I never went to the stadium to ever see a football game. And so I think that, um, yeah, I mean, I think that the misconception is that, you know, that, that people walk around with a sense of feeling elite or so. And I would say that it's pretty far from that. When I work there, and I know this to be the case, even still, most of the students who were accepted were students from public high schools, not even like, you know, students from the fanciest prep schools or students who were doing the most like decorated things. I mean, the, the school's the school tried and continues to try very hard to find different people from different walks of life who can bring in a diversity of perspective. They want to bring in that budding astronomer, that like, you know, that future writer, if you will, or journalist, that person, you know, that, that, that sort of burgeoning like scientists or so. So they want to be able to really kind of balance out the class. And, and, and I just think that some people might have a misconception about what the typical profile of a Columbia student is, especially given its history, right? The sort of rabble rouser, like of the 60s, the rah-rah. And I think that, you know, they're definitely sort of more progressive people on campus or so, but then there, you absolutely have like people who are very conservative. So I think there's a little bit of everything there. And I don't think that most people realize that. I didn't even know Columbia had a football team, so I just learned something new. I, Lions, they're called you Lions. You shocked me there, so <laughs> I just, I really can't imagine that for some reason. So let's move on to the application itself. So when students apply, they can apply either to Columbia College or Columbia Engineering. Are there any mistakes that you find students make when they're choosing between those schools? So I think that the mistake that's made, and this, I mean, I'm speaking as a college counselor in general, and it happens sometimes at Columbia, but I think that sometimes students, it happens with other students, and especially at universities where there might be multiple undergraduate schools, where people might apply to one because like the admission rate is, is higher, and they think that they're going to get there and then transfer kind of back door, find a back door way. And I would say, no, I mean, like you need to find, you know, take a look at, at, at the schools and take a look at the program that's offered. Because if you get in, like it's going to be really hard to transfer. I think Columbia's transfer rate in general, not even just internally, but overall, I mean, it used to be in the single digits, like 5% or so. It was incredibly difficult to get in as a transfer student. So I would hesitate to ever tell anyone to use it as a strategy to bank on the fact that, you know, they'll get in, you know, to the, to the easier college or so, or to the easier school to then kind of transfer over. So definitely, you know, take a look at that. But I think as, you know, as I'm, as I sort of think about the, the application process, 
definitely think about and, and be very strategic about what it is that you want to do and how you think you would align yourself with each school, right? Obviously, if you've got more sort of STEM background, stronger stronger grades or stronger testing in the sciences and technology and math, you might want to align yourself. You might want to look at the School of Engineering. If your uh, strengths and your strong suits are really sort of rooted in the social sciences, in the languages, in, in philosophy, and in those kinds of areas, even in the natural sciences, right, as we talk about maybe sort of biology and physics, which, which are sort of housed at Columbia College, then maybe the college is more for you. So I, I you know, I think that that's one of the things like just a piece of advice that I would ask everybody to consider just to kind of look at, you know, your, your real interests and your strengths, right? Take a look at your, that transcript, where have historically, where have your strengths been and really try to look at, or try to find the best option for school so that you can apply. So it's one and done, right? Because to, to, to say to yourself, I'm going to apply to this one because it's easier. And then I'll just transfer you might get stuck. And if that's not what you wanted, then that's certainly something that you want to avoid altogether on the front end. And are there any other mistakes that you find students make just in general with their applications that you kind of often encounter? So one of the mistakes that I found, oddly enough, was that a student would apply but would have never either visited the campus or didn't have a real sense of what the school is all about. And again, it's incredibly challenging in the middle of a pandemic to actually get out to a campus. But especially if a student is local, right? If, a, if you can take a train in from New Jersey, from Connecticut, a bus from Pennsylvania, you know, maybe you're, you're able to sort of drive down from Boston or drive up from the DC area. I mean, we've got a pretty big sort of the megalopolis, if you will, right? Like in the area. And so I think that we would often see students who were going to, you know, very good schools, but who had never stepped foot on the campus. And so the question was, how much do they really know about us? That kid is fair, is living sort of fairly close by. That kid's in New Jersey. Why has that person, why did that person not come to an information session? Or there was one hosted at their school. Why did they not show up? And so I think that that's what students don't realize that, you know, we talked about demonstrated interest before and the schools do like to see that as much as possible, you know, if a student has access to admissions officers or even alum who, who visits from on behalf of the school, that they take advantage of it. I mean, they definitely... I mean, they, they can't put a, a huge premium on it, right? Because I mean, not everybody has access to it. I mean, it's not like we would fly to Alaska every year and visit all the schools there, right? I mean, that would have been a state where we saw fewer candidates from or Kentucky. But I do think that, you know, when one lives close by or when one is looking to apply to a school and has planned a trip to that city, definitely make sure that you visit the school and that you have an idea of it. Those are things that you know, ideally admissions officers want to see, they want to understand that, you know, the ins and outs that you had an opportunity to see the campus, especially again, if you would have sort of had an easy touch point or an easy way to visit. And so I don't think people realize that those are things that, that sometimes we, we thought about, or at least discussed, right? There was no way to kind of quantify that, but we looked at that, that for sure. We'd say, okay, they live so close by, why haven't they visited? And why are they telling us that, that the reason they want to be here is this? How do they even know that? So those are, those are sort of behind the scenes conversations that were had. You've already referenced this, but one thing that makes the Columbia application unique is that they do have these three list questions. So the first one, 75 words or less, and they ask about the titles of required readings from school. The second one asks about the titles of books, essays, poetry, short stories, plays that they enjoyed outside of school. And then the last asks about just their interests, publications they like, so websites, publications, journals, podcasts, social media accounts, lectures, museums, movies, music, et cetera. So how do you think students should approach these? How did you approach them as an admissions officer? Great question. And, and those are incredibly unique. Most other institutions don't get mired in questions like that, but those questions have been around since I was an admissions officer, since I was a, since I was a student applying. Um, and so they continue to be very important. I'll tell you how it is that they're viewed. As I mentioned before, the university has a very sort of robust, you know, core curriculum that is rooted in things like literature, the humanities, arts and science. And so the, the school really, you know, really wants to find students who are intellectually curious, students who are reading, people who are engaged and involved in what's happening in the world around them. And that continues to be, you know, really a sort of hallmark of the kind of student that Columbia wants to find. Yes, they want to find the next, you know, I mentioned the next astronomer, the next like scientist, the next uh, journalist or so. They also want to make sure that 
you know, as they're looking for them, that, that they find that these people are actually really engaged in what's happening in the world around them or that they know what's what's going on. So they look at your reading list. They look at the kinds of, I mean, are you, are you watching TED Talks on like, you know, body language, right? Like, you know, to sort of better yourself. Are you, you know, are you reading, you know, some, some humanities, right? Or, or what are you reading? It could be other things, right? But what is it? And are there themes there? Um, I think that for people, you know, if I ever saw someone who was reading like, you know, Dr. Seuss or, you know, or comic books, that probably wasn't someone that I, you know, that, that was going to resonate with me for, for a spot in the class. You know, but if I saw someone who might have started to really kind of grapple with things like Plato and Descartes and Kant, you know, I might have had a, a sort of a, a different take on that. That doesn't mean that those are the books that need to be read. But I do think, you know, maybe somebody's got another, you know, a sort of another theme of like maybe self-help books, right? Maybe you started off with The Secret or so. Um, and I think that, you know, I definitely used to look for for sort of patterns. I knew people, I mean, I remember reading people who, you know, who, who were really sort of into political sort of autobiographies or, or biographies, as it were. And so I just think that students applying don't realize that the, the university is looking to see how intellectually curious they are, you know, how they kind of keep themselves busy, you know, how they stay engaged in the world around them. And that is a very important part of the process. Yeah, I was going to ask if they're are kind of like any pieces of media that you'd encounter that you think like students should maybe not mention? Because I think this is the kind of question that students can overthink. And then also, do you kind of encounter sometimes that students would sort of like project an image of themselves that wasn't accurate? So like you said, like they say, oh yeah, I, le- I read Plato, I read Kant, Descartes, like, and you'd be like, do you? I mean, look, I, I do think that we often encountered students who whose profiles and whose whose responses to those questions really made us really made us question. So there might be students who literally just sort of methodically kind of listed every single book that's part of Western civilization without any real sort of rhyme or reason. And that really was never what we were looking for, right? We we definitely were looking for a sort of thoughtful, you know, we wanted to understand how the, the person's interests had sort of progressed, like the kinds of overarching sort of literature that they were that they were looking at and sort of into and processing and digesting and at the other end of the spectrum we definitely had people who would list things that just didn't feel like were were really well thought out I kid you not when I say like we had people who might have listed like Marvel comic and I thought like and I thought to myself like that might be fine for a different kind of question but this is an academic institution so really try to think or be thoughtful about the kind of and it doesn't have to be academic work, but some kind of thoughtful like work of literature, of poetry, of art, of music, of, of cinematography, of film that you are, are you know, that, that's having some kind of impact on you. Are you reading, you know, The Alchemist or so, right? Like, um, or are you reading, you know, The Archies? I mean, that's, it's been a while. I kind of, I'm kind of dating myself with that. But I'm just saying like, you know, I'm, you really have to think about the kind of book. I mean, you're not going to throw in there... I forget what those werewolf, no, you know, romance novels are all about, right? But, but I'm just saying, like, you would not, you want to, to, to sort of add that to the list, all right? Really be, and I'm not suggesting that anybody should make up anything, right? That is not, you know, that is not ever. You should absolutely be true, you know, to to what you've done and, and portray yourself accurately. But think about portraying yourself accurately in the best light, right? Like, really highlight those things that uh, that show real thought and show, you know real potential to kind of like help you develop a a different view of the world or help you to kind of think about life differently, right? I think that, I mean, I certainly as an admissions officer was looking for the kind of impact that that all of those, that all of the material and and all that information would sort of have on the process. It's really good insight because I think some universities definitely do have more of those like kind of throwaway get to know you questions. Like when I applied to USC, it was like, what is your favorite food? And I said, pizza bagel, because pizza bagels are delicious. But it's really good insight that these aren't just like quirky, like, like you said, oh, I like Marvel comics, but like, how do you as an intellectual like engage with media in the world? Sure, absolutely. So next we'll talk about the actual supplemental essays. So there are three and students have 200 words or less. The first one is, I'll read it. A hallmark of the Columbia experience is being able to learn and live in a community with a wide range of perspectives. How do you, or would you learn from and contribute to a diverse collaborative community? When we think about diversity, it's a very important topic that we've sort of been addressing as a society, especially for the last two years. And Columbia is no different, right? To, to want to be part of the conversation, really want to foster dialogue around diversity. And they want to understand how people kind of manage that like 
diversity will look different for everyone. If you're from a really tiny town and now you're coming to a big city, diversity is going to look one way for you. I mean, if you're an international student, again, coming to the States, it's going to look a different way. If you're someone coming from a particular ethnic background and now amongst people from many different backgrounds, but you might've grown up in a place that didn't have that. And so the, the university wants to understand the experiences of everybody, right? And there might be some that are really compelling. What I would say is rarely have I seen an essay break an application, right? Rarely have I seen an essay do like, I mean, well, if you're in the running, you're in the running because of your academics and because of your leadership, right? And so rarely do I see an essay just completely, you know, knock you out of the box and just like keep you from getting an offer. But I can say that I've seen the essay though, tip the scales for someone, like someone who's just on the cut, someone who's really strong in everything else, but now that essay is super memorable. So I would say don't overthink the essays too much, but you know, understand how they're being used. The university definitely wants to find people who, you know, who've had some experience with diversity. Um, and I think that if, if, you know, if and when those essays resonate in a way that that's really powerful, um, you know, that really shows that someone's been able to overcome like prejudice or someone's been able to forge connections that they would never have had before. But for the fact that like they're in a, in a, in a, in a setting that that allows for, for more sort of access to different people, so a sort of more diverse setting, if you will. I think that those are the kinds of things that then stand out. When I was an admissions officer, we would code an essay when it was particularly well written. We would actually, there was a special code that you would add that you could flag so that people knew this essay was so like powerful. So like I said, rarely does the essay, you know, negatively impact the student's entire um, application. But if a student can actually get some, you know, some information in there that, that just kind of resonates, that feels like, you know, it's so distinct or that it shows that you really learned something or, you know, you were able to adapt to something else in a way that others couldn't, those things are memorable and certainly, you know, can, can tip the scales in, in, in a person's favor. The next question is, why are you interested in attending, attending Columbia University? We encourage you to consider the aspects that you find unique and compelling about Columbia. So there, obviously, they want the students to show school fit. So what does that look like? Absolutely. So the why Columbia, when I was an admissions officer, was a huge, huge deal, right? And I think that sometimes people lost it, you know, with, with that. And I'll say, you know, person might have a great application, but suddenly says something like, well, I want to be in Columbia because I really just want to be in New York. Eh right? Like that just wasn't going to cut it. Um, you know, as an admissions officer, I certainly want, as an admissions officer and also as a, as a former alum, I wanted to know that the person had really done their homework, that the person knew about the school, like what we offered. If someone talked about the core curriculum and how they came across it and how much impact it had, I'm like, man, that person really knows about that. Or maybe someone had done a deeper dive and they knew about one of the programs and some of the uh, some of the research, the renowned research that was going on in that area. Um, and that was what was compelling them to want to apply. So I think the more that someone knows about Columbia and really can speak to, you know, again, I would say, do not, do not say, Hey, I want to be a Columbia because I want to be in New York and New York has always been my dream. I think that you're, I mean, that you're going to be known for the wrong reasons if you say that, but really be thoughtful and sort of think through, you know, what it is about what the university offers, what it is about like where it, you know, about the student body, about the access to academics, about uh, some of the cutting edge research that's happening there that really is compelling you to want to apply and, and ultimately is why you're, you're so drawn. And then the final question is, please tell us what your current and past experiences, either academic or personal, attract you specifically to the area of study that you noted in your application. Yeah. And so this is one of those essays and, and most schools have similar types of essays where they want to understand, you know, what is it that you want to do and how did you arrive at that? What was the sort of nexus? What got you to a point that where you decided you wanted to be, you know, a journalist or where you wanted to be the, you know, the astrophysicist or, you know, you decided that you wanted to be the linguistics expert, you know, the, what, what is it called? Is it the polyglot? The person who speaks like multiple, you know, languages. And so, you know, to understand what a person wanted to do, that's great, right? But to also understand the origins of that, I think could be very compelling. I mean, when you've got someone who says, you know what, I want to do biomedical research because my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And I remember firsthand sort of working through that. And it was very clear to me that when I grew up, I wanted to find, 
you know, I wanted to study biomedical research because I wanted to find a cure for Alzheimer's. That's compelling more so than being like, well, Columbia has, you know, Columbia's in New York and there's a lot of really great like research institutions there. And it's just going to be a lot of fun. And I'm going to be able to just learn so much that has no depth that doesn't show any kind of like inspiration, but when you can really kind of personalize it, or when you can show that something that you've done, um, you know, so you've had some kind of meaningful exposure and that was really where your passion for this area was born. And some people just don't know what they want to do, but I would say as much as possible, try to have a some sense of what you want to do. I think that you can keep it a little bit sort of open-ended or, or sort of vague, so to speak, if you're, if, if you can narrow it down and say, look, I really am interested in the sciences or in these areas of engineering. But I think to say like, I don't know what I want to do. I could do political science. I could do English. I could do history. Like, I think that that's just way too vague. And I think that that could definitely hurt a student. So definitely be as specific as possible and try to give as much detail about the backstory and how all of that came about. Students are also able to submit supplementary materials. It's optional and they can submit either academic research or creative portfolios. Which students do you think should take advantage of these opportunities? Is it, you know, just any students with kind of like the inclination or talent or really like the top level been published or like top singer, violinist? Honestly, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit biased about this. I think if someone is really sort of top level, that's the kind of information they should be submitting. I mean, I think if you if you doodle on the weekends and you have like little pencil drawings, that's nice. But I mean, I think if your stuff isn't hanging at a museum or it's it hasn't been like, you know, for sale somewhere or so, then, you know, it, it, it probably won't have any effect, right? I, I would discourage someone for submitting that because it would have very little effect on the final outcome of the application. But I do think that someone who might be nationally ranked or someone who may have, you know, who may have had their art exhibited somewhere, someone who is just a, a renowned like musician or so, and there's a video of that or a ballerina, those kinds of folks who, who again, ranked nationally or internationally really have just carved out a niche for themselves and really are competing in a space, you know, either artistically or from a sports perspective or even scientifically that they're just competing on another level. And I think those are ideally the kinds of candidates who would want to use a portfolio or supplemental, you know, materials to, you know, to kind of enhance and, and really showcase their strengths. But I think the average person, and the thing is that most people don't submit anything, but I think the average person then doesn't have to really rest on that, doesn't have to worry about, you know, submitting drawings or, or things that they do just for sort of fun. You know, that poem that you wrote that one time. Now, if you are a published author and you've got books of poetry, I think that that's pretty compelling. And I do think that that's more memorable. But I think that, you know, if, if it's not really something that that is sort of noteworthy, again, at that national, internationally ranked level, or, or something that really, you know, something that, I mean, if, if someone did something that makes like the, the hometown newspaper or so, I, I might send that along. Again, it's, it's particularly noteworthy. But I think generally where there's just like, you know, sort of average... I don't want to say average, but things that are, you know, that, that, that aren't necessarily being, that aren't capturing, like, you know, that aren't garnering the attention um, at a national, international level. And I would say like, there's probably no need to submit lots of supplemental essays or media. I know at some schools, they have the faculty from like the specific area review that. So like, if you send like a, you know, music of you playing the piano, they might have like piano yeah. faculty look at that. Is that true? Yes. In some instances, yes. So if someone was coming in as a potential music major, there were very few people around the admissions office who were qualified to, you know, to kind of assess them. Like she sounds really good on the piano, but then again, so I thought I was really good at it, you know, the keyboard when I would play it. And so we would look to our faculty sometimes to really give us an assessment, like, okay, this person's doing this kind of research. Is this even good? We don't know. We have no idea if his hypothesis was even something that could be tested. And so we, we did rely on them and sort of lean on them as the expert you know, to give us some feedback. But even, you know, when I was at Columbia, we had a joint program between Columbia College and Juilliard. And so somebody, you know, for someone to get in, they had to have a very specific talent because they had to go through an audition at Juilliard. And how would we know about, you know, a burgeoning like dancer, ballerina or what have you? Like I would have had no expertise in being able to assess that. So I absolutely would have to get someone who, you know, who could speak to, you know, a sort of dance portion of it. 
So again, yes, when when needed or as needed, just really getting the the information or or the perspective, if you will, right, the sort of expertise from the faculty that becomes important. And 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 it's not that the faculty are, are sort of looped into the admission process all that often, but when there are people with particularly you know developed skills or someone who's who's really like a star, the faculty are are consulted just to to understand whether or not you know the accomplishment are truly noteworthy. Now, the Common App obviously isn't specific to Columbia, isn't specific to any school, but when you were reading it, were there common mistakes you might see in the personal statement, the activities list? So I, I think there's a couple of things, right? I mean, that I, that I could think that would sort of disadvantage people's applications. One is, you know, just not answering the question that's being asked or going on and on, really just not following the guidelines. I think also being kind of sloppy about the presentation I'd read several essays that started off or, you know, concluded, you know, this is why I want to apply to Brown University or, you know, this is why I want to apply to Yale College. And I'm like, oh, God, why didn't this person relook at that? That's not that's not a flattering sort of portrayal of who they are looking to, you know, how they want to be sort of assessed and seen as part of the, the process. But I also think any any kind of application that has too many glaring errors, I think, you know, every once in a while you've got like a typo or so. I mean, I, I don't remember admissions officers being, you know, sort of unforgiving about that. But I do think, you know, it's like anything. When you have a resume, when you're submitting some kind of an application for something important, you really want to take your time and make sure that it is well crafted, make sure that it is free of typographical errors, just want to make sure that you're putting your best foot forward. And so I think all of those things in aggregate could, you know, could cause the admission officer to not look as favorably upon that application. Because if it was, if it was deemed or considered that the person submitted it in a rush or without much thought or with any, without any kind of real like consideration because there were so many errors or because there were so many instances where they referred to the school by the wrong name, then, you know, then that just didn't bode well. Just wrapping up now, are there any additional words of wisdom you'd like to share, maybe especially for younger students who are hoping to go to Columbia one day? You know, with the internet and with all the options and opportunities that people have to like do a virtual tour or just to kind of zero in on particular departments and understand what they offer. I would absolutely suggest that someone who's younger start to look at that. If they want to take, you know, some summer classes or get involved in something on that campus before they actually start college, go ahead and do that. I mean, it's a great time to explore. So I just think like starting early enough, being informed, going for those like visits, taking advantage of all of that and really formulating the right kinds of opinions and being able to to really just understand the full scope of what's being offered and, and really become knowledgeable about the process. I think that those will be some of the most successful candidates. And I think that, you know, if you start soon like that, you're, you know, the, the chances of success are even greater because then you have time to prepare. You know what the school's looking for. You know, you know, you can sort of take inventory of what you have access to, to see what you can best do to kind of challenge yourself by taking the tougher classes or, you know, doing, doing something particularly special just to really raise the profile and enhance your chances of getting in. so much for joining us today, Jennifer. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into admissions at Columbia. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have any questions or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag Inside Admissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.